Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Reese Irie, the Vice President of, Hawk- of uh, Podcast Club, and I'm here with Ethan Lee. And today we have a special guest, Mr. Sano Pietro. So first off, I'm going to kind of go over what the goal of this podcast is, or this podcast series that we have, because we're going to come up with a, a bunch of these. And then, yeah, we'll get into this. So the goal of the Intellectual Topics series of Podcast Club is to engage with students and teachers and hold conversations about engaging ideas. We hope that we can capture our students' interests through the conversations that we have, and we want to motivate our viewers to think about the subject matter that we speak about. Today, I would like to welcome our first guest to the Intellectual Topics podcast, a physics teacher in the Meadows High School, Mr. Sano Pietro, here to talk with us about evolution. Thanks for having me, guys. No problem. Honor to be here. <laughs> so first, to start off, I think, because we're going to talk a bit about evolution, I think we should first talk about the free rider problem in the context of evolution. Like, could you maybe explain like what it is? Yeah, so the free rider problem is a general class of problems that comes up in evolution. So in trying to explain some evolutionary mechanism about how it came about, uh, specifically in group dynamics, um, people realize there's this there's this problem with certain explanations due to what are called free riders. So uh, you can imagine uh, people thought maybe organisms could develop um, group dynamics based on evolution, but these descriptions are hard because let's say let's say you're part of a group and you evolve some phenotype or trait that helps the group. Um, the problem with this these types of explanations is that um, you may exert uh, you may actually go through that behavior that helps the group, but what's to prevent some other member of that group from just exploiting uh, the benefits of having that group and not participating in the effort needed to make it happen? So these days, I mean, we have we still have free rider problems. We're still dealing mm-hmm. with this. So one example you could think of is on the subway. So on the subway, uh, we don't have subways here, but in New York, they've got subways and people pay their taxes, and that pays for the transportation authority to run the subway and whatnot. And people also pay their fares to ride the subway, mm-hmm. but you're always gonna have people that just hop the queue and don't pay their fair share. Those are literally free riders. And so they're riding on the train <laughs> for riders. free. And this isn't unique to humans. So this is a problem in all species. Uh, so if you imagine like subways as a evolutionary development, I mean, they're not really, that's really sort of a social construct, but if mm-hmm. you use it as an example, um, if you were going to try to explain it evolutionarily, you'd, you'd have a problem because those people riding the subway for free are gaining the benefit of other people paying the money for the subway, um, but also not paying the price. And so they get double the benefit. Mm-hmm. So you'd think that natural selection would tend to favor those people um, and they'd have a better rate of reproduction uh, possibility and you'd expect them to dominate, which would get rid of the subway. So. Whenever evolutionary biologists have tried to explain possible group evolutionary dynamics, this is one of the main problems that pops up is is the free rider problem that what's to prevent one member of the group from gaining the advantages of that group dynamic, but not participating. And if they do get double the advantage, then why doesn't evolution just favor them and just cancel that entire group dynamic? So So that's that's the free rider. So you're talking about how like an individual within a specific group or something how an individual would want to uh, have like personal gain, uh, like pers- uh, personal gain, and find methods to get to get to that personal gain, 
instead of thinking of the collective whole. Yep. So if you view evolution as a, a competition to see whose genetics can prosper and whose genetics will spread, um, you could just ask what behavior types would be rewarded in that situation. And in, in a lot of situations that you might describe with group dynamics, um, someone that doesn't go through the drawback but develops a mechanism that that gains the benefit but doesn't pay the price would get more benefit and they theoretically have more reproductive capability and then that that uh, genetic information should spread which should cancel the which should cancel the benefit so in the 60s you know the hippies the hippies were like oh man i bet all these groups developed some they you know they look at deer and they wondered or like you know gazelles say lions were going to chase gazelles mm -hmm. The thought was maybe one gazelle gives up its life for the benefit of the group. Maybe one gazelle holds back, mm -hmm. lets the lion get it so that the whole group doesn't get uh, taken. Yes. So there were some people were trying to figure out these group type explanations. And people were interested in it for a while. They tried to figure out these like uh, uh, these evolutionary dynamics that were um, benefiting the group. Uh, but people quickly realized if you try to follow that to its logical conclusion, any of those deer that didn't develop that but just became free riders, say, any any deer that had the genetic tendency to allow those other people to sacrifice themselves but mm -hmm. not themselves would have an advantage, and you'd quickly get to the point where no one in the group was going to sacrifice themselves anymore, and so that behavior should, should end quickly. So to this day, a lot of evolutionary biologists don't, don't think there can be group evolution in that sense. They think of it more as an individual uh, evolutionary mechanism. So something better help you and your progeny directly for it to be having an evolutionary explanation. Um, so to this day, there, there's kind of a divide. Most most evolutionary biologists, I think, still think you need to directly get a benefit in order for it to evolve in terms of evolution and not be a group evolution. But there's a bit of a food fight right now. Uh, Professor Jonathan Haidt mm -hmm. is trying to make the case that there's actually group dynamics and you can make evolutionary arguments with groups and other people like uh richard dawkins is violently opposed to this idea and so we don't know right now but um we think there's ways to get around the free rider problem in fact we think there should be because because we know that we know how to speak and mm -hmm. that's a fundamentally social almost group like evolutionary dynamic and so yes. Just the fact that we are here speaking suggests that there are evolutionary ways to get around potential group free rider problems. But mm -hmm. even then, like for a group, the groups, rather than evolving forward, it feels like that they're almost trying to do like unevolution or something like that because there's the whole gossiping thing to mm -hmm. where groups will gossip about a person who is a free rider and taking advantage of all of these systems. And why we gossip, we're not too sure about yet, but that's basically a counter to the whole idea behind a group evolving. Yeah, so language is a, along with, you know, free rider mysteries, the <laughs> how we develop language is one of the biggest mysteries we got. And yeah, <laughs> yeah one, of the, one of the best explanations or one of the leading explanations for how we got around this problem of language. So in, in the context of language, the free rider problem is often phrased as the reliability problem. Mm -hmm. Why do we give reliable speech? Why don't I just try to Machiavelli and just fool you as best I can and take your money and take your resources and, and gain an advantage like that? Um, 
So you're talking about the ability to tell a truth uh, versus like the ability to lie kind of almost in a way? Yep. So humans are very truthful, even though, you know, people complain about the fact that we lie and we do lie. But but compared to other species, um, you know, we're, we're obsessed with truth, which is kind of weird. And how do you kind of say that? So, we, you know, we have science. We have like we make we make cave paintings of the world on our cave, you know what I mean? And now we do that in real life. We, we take photos. We're always trying to reproduce the world. It's like we're obsessed with with reproducing it. So, so gorillas don't sit there and try to trace out a map of their surroundings in the dirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the bonobos aren't sketching graphs or what the, uh, the population looks like on the wall. And, and the, the badgers aren't creating one-to-one recreations of their landscape around them or trying to do science or trying to model the universe or anything like that. We're, we're doing all these things. We're trying to reproduce the universe in our paintings and our mathematics and our science um, in our speech. So when we talk to each other, our words are almost representing some world out there and how, why? So the one question, the reliability problem is like, why would we do that if we might gain an evolutionary advantage to lying to other people? Mm -hmm. So this is why we think animals don't speak. It's not because, they can't speak. It's because no animals would listen if they could because it'd just say, hey, leave all your bananas here. There's even better ones around the corner. They would leave. You'd get the bananas and they'd be screwed out. And that girl would say, I've never listened to anything anyone ever tells me again. And so gossip, we think, like you say, is maybe the way we uh, got around this and it would make predictions. It would suggest that gossip's at the root of our language. And if you go around, (laughs) you can conduct this experiment on your own. People are gossiping constantly in every single job and occupation and age and just it's nonstop gossip. And so the idea is if someone did uh, give you unreliable speech, uh, you could you could punish them and mitigate their free rider advantage by gossiping to everyone you know that that person's a snake and you shouldn't <laughs> trust them. And we kind of do this. When something bad happens, everyone wants to gossip about it. And the school is no different. Gossip travels from one side to the other and like, speed of light you know what i mean it's like no time whatsoever and so that's one idea we might have we might have been able to get past the free rider reliability problem in language because we gossip non-stop which changed how i look at gossip i used to think it was horrible destructive <laughs> thing you shouldn't do and i still think it's kind of like you know it's bad if you do it too much but uh i have newfound respect for gossip it may have <laughs> saved us as a as a species trying to for, speak also i think for for gossiping, I think that also humans do that because way back when, when we didn't have like all technology and whatever, and we were just trying, we were just trying to survive right. in the landscape of nature. I think knowing as much as we could about our surroundings would keep us safe. So like, let's say you have gossip and like someone's like, oh yeah, there's a gorilla over there, which to us doesn't really sound like gossip, but at the same time, like when we talk about like, hey, this guy bought a new car, that could be also considered gossip. Mm -hmm. And so there are different ways of thinking about gossip, and this kind of gossip would help us stay safe because then we know everything about our surroundings. Yeah, Yeah. also speaking on the topic of gossip, kind of um, going into a little bit of a different topic as well, would you, uh, because of the presence of uh, some specific human behaviors, like gossip and that type of thing, would you kind of believe that humans in the modern day are basically the same humans that lived in the Stone Age, but just kind of evolved to fit into this type of environment that we live in today? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So how much has our genetics changed in the 250,000 years since Homo sapiens first, like, you know, were on Earth? It's a good question. I mean, we don't know exactly, I don't think. Um, we suspect it isn't that great. So what I mean by that is like, theoretically, we think if you go back 250,000 years, you could pluck a hunter-gatherer baby from that time if we had a time machine. Pluck that baby out, bring it to modern day, give it to a family to adopt, it, it, it might have some problems. It'd probably be the weird kid in school, but it would probably be able to navigate our social situations. It'd be able to speak. Mm -hmm. It'd be able to, you know, uh, deal with numbers and have sort of mathematical ideas built into its head. It could probably navigate most of our world fine and come across as maybe a weird human, but a human. You might know, be like, this is a person. Yeah. Um, so, not so i don't think we're genetically different enough that that wouldn't happen we think that could happen um mm -hmm. you could go get a stone age you know or a paleolithic no not paleolithic whatever two hundred fifty thousand years ago would be if you can grab one and bring them to to present day but there have been some changes um what would those changes be like how have we changed them probably a few ways like we we obviously as humans spread out from East Africa, we think we started in East Africa somewhere. So mm -hmm. maybe like 300,000 years ago, we probably share a matrilineal great, 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 great grandmother. Mm -hmm. This was called the mitochondrial Eve. Have you guys ever heard of the mitochondrial Eve? No, I'm not. <laughs> so this is the idea that every person currently on earth shares a matrilineal great, great, you know, grandmother Oh, uh, it's hard to say exactly when the date is, but if you look at genetics and how the spread has occurred, we think it's, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand years ago, most likely from somewhere in East Africa. Mm -hmm. And then humans spread out from there, and there's clearly been a lot of genetic changes. You know, people that went really north, there wasn't a lot of sun there, so their skin got lightened. Um, people spread over the Bering Straits, small superficial variations in skin color. Um, at some point, we figured out how to digest milk as an adult, which is weird. <laughs> Um, I don't think any other animals know how to digest milk as an adult. I don't believe so because we think that we started figuring out how to digest milk once we started the agricultural revolution and we started domesticating animals. Now we had all these cows and goats and whatnot. And uh, if you happen to have a genetic mutation where your stomach could digest the milk as an adult, well, if things got, if things got slim in the village, you could at least drink the milk for sustenance. Uh, which for most people, you know, before that time, you were able to digest milk as a baby because that's what your mom would give you. But as you got to an adult, there was no need to continue being able to digest milk. And so that that enzyme in your stomach that would be able to break that down um, would just stop being made and you'd stop drinking milk because there was no point of it for a hunter-gatherer. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, somewhere, and it happened fast, somewhere there was some genetic mutation um, and it spread quick, surprisingly quickly through Europe and then into Asia. And we think, we think certain tribes in Asia were able to just dominate because they'd ride their horses. You could milk horses. You know, you can milk horses. 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 So <laughs> you could be a horseback warrior just on your horse. And if you needed to, you can milk the horse and then drink the milk. And that's the sustenance. And it's like, it's like driving a car that's also a vending machine. Like your transportation <laughs> is the food. And they were able to just run roughshod over a lot of uh, more traditional armies that had to drag enormous amounts of food with them. And they were slow. 
And these, these uh, you know, horsemen were just like agile and effectively just like ninjas on horseback because of the fact that they could just travel light and lean and move swiftly. And so there was some enormous evolutionary advantage in this spread rapidly throughout the world. Again, I'm not the greatest at digesting milk, but I could do it if I drink too much, mm -hmm. get a stomachache, yeah, like probably most people. Yeah, because there's still some problems in the world. Like but, we can't perfectly digest milk for sure. There's definitely a lot of um, problems with dairy that a lot right. of humans still have in the modern day. So, But the fact that we could do it at all, that's a pretty significant genetic change in the last 12,000 years that has occurred, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. Also, the digesting milk thing, like it didn't just go from like people never drink milk to people just started drinking milk. It actually turns out that people had been making stuff like cheese and yogurt mm. like way back when, like maybe 7,000, 8,000 years ago, right. something like that. And it has much less lactose, which is what our bodies cannot uh, interesting. deal with. Like right. cheese has maybe like 10% of the lactose that milk has. So maybe it was like a little step. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I think those horsemen actually made, that's gross, they made like horse cheese. <laughs> But you know what I mean? If you're fighting a war and stuff, like that's what you do. I think they did make horse cheese with that milk. That is probably a intermediate step. Yeah, it's a good point. We might've gone from not eating dairy at all to figuring out alternative ways to eat dairy to someone, someone somewhere could just digest the milk directly. And then we just started drinking glasses of milk. Wow. Now we got posters with like football players saying, drink milk, you know what I mean? <laughs> that poster of, you know, Patriot, player with the milk mustache is directly connected somewhere, you know, like 6,000 years ago or something to someone that just genetically got a mutation that allowed their stomach to digest milk as an adult, which is kind of weird. But wow. Do you, do you think people learned maybe that milk like provides antibodies? Because I know for breastfeeding, a lot of people mm. talk about how milk, like milk provides antibodies for right. babies. Do you think that people figured that out or they just started drinking milk and evolutionarily they found that they were like, oh yeah, these people are living and these people aren't. I think I'd be shocked if it wasn't the latter. I don't think we didn't even know about germs until like, I don't know what, a couple hundred years ago. Right. <laughs> Dude, the germ theory of like uh, sickness wasn't even a thing until just really recently. So I don't think we knew anything about antibodies or like, like clearly we wouldn't have called them antibodies, but I don't think we knew much about that at all. We. It was just probably like a stumbling, bumbling, hey, this this person has an advantage, now they can drink this, and just sort of a wayward, drunkenly march through evolution as far as I can tell. But again, this stuff's hard. No one was there to keep notes. People weren't <laughs> keeping notes. Um, they might have noticed, you know, people are smart. Humans are so clever. So we just the fact that we could do agriculture at all, we think that, okay, so this is, one theory about how agriculture came about was uh, um, there was sort of a division of labor of, you know, men would go hunt and gather and women would, you know, do some of the gathering. And women were much more knowledgeable about the horticulture and the plant life around. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of historians think that women were the first to just regularly notice these plants' behaviors and when they would bloom and when they wouldn't and where they would bloom and where they wouldn't. And women were probably the first to notice, oh, wait, uh, you know, I spread these seeds here on accident and now things are growing here. And some clever girl somewhere was probably like, oh, shoot, we could just do this on our own. <laughs> so they, they, they were very perceptive. Like we were, you know, evolutionarily engineered to just spot patterns all over the place. In fact, 
we spot more patterns than there really are. If you're asleep at night and you hear a noise, uh, suddenly a story pops into your head of a robber back there instead, mm -hmm. you know, in the backyard instead of just a cat or something. So we're, we're good at recognizing patterns and we almost overcorrect. We see patterns even when there aren't necessarily any patterns. So yeah, uh, early humans, you know, like that girl that spotted probably like, oh, hey, you do this, you can, you can grow plants on your own. There might've been a human that was like, oh, wait, this person drank this and they didn't get sick. You know what I mean? And then, then we used to do it with myths. So we usually didn't have these things figured out. So we tell each other myths and stories and whatnot. And that would help us just remember what to do. And because we didn't have a science back then, we didn't, have, we didn't have written language until, you know, what, 4,000 years ago or something like that. So there'd be some way to like convey this knowledge. And a lot of it was through storytelling. And so we, they might've had some story about, about milk and how it could protect you. And that'd be cool. The story of milk, you know story. what I mean? Maybe even the story of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> cheese here, boy, take your cheese. And like, you don't, so you don't get sick. So on the topic of, we were talking a little bit about agriculture and hunter gatherers basically. Mm -hmm. So uh, the ability for a hunter gatherer relationships kind of work back then. At least, um, yeah, w uh, within the time where agriculture started becoming a thing and beforehand and all that, how did this whole idea of family come up? Because here we kind of see um, specific genders, at least at the time, being assigned specific roles and that somehow led to family values. But the thing is that for monogamous relationships, we're basically one of the only species out of all the out of all like the organisms in the world to actually have monogamous relationships so how how would you kind of explain that and talk about that a little bit yeah so we're one of the few mammals um non-mammals it's more uh you know common so birds some, someone mentioned this in class too i think Bird, birds are like 90 percent pair but they pair bond like 90 percent of them so you know that phrase love birds or whatever it's not just a myth. These birds really do pair bond more than humans do, or, or at least more than mammals do. And within mammals, there aren't that many examples. I mean, there's humans, wolves do it, uh, they pair bond. Why this happened? Uh, I mean, the best, the current explanation, or at least one of the best explanations we have amongst evolutionary biologists is that is that uh, it must have provided some advantage to the survival of the offspring, we think. Now there's other theories out there, but one theory is that uh, to accommodate humans' big brain and cranium. So this was about 5 million years ago. Our brain size just started like really increasing dramatically and this allowed for tool production um, and language most likely, you know what I mean? It made room for all this stuff, but it did not make room or mama. Mama was like, I gotta get this kid out of me. This kid's never gonna fit. So we had to get start giving birth to our youth younger and less developed than they would have been. Um, mm -hmm. So the idea is uh, homo sapiens, or not homo sapiens, but early hominids at some point would have given birth too early effectively because the brain's just too large to, to fit through um, mm -hmm. unless it was birthed at that time. And um, this leads to a helpless human being. And so uh, for us, one idea of how pair bonding worked is that if, that if that male mate did not stick around to help the mother, that, that baby's basically got no chance and neither does the mother. If you're sitting there with a helpless baby, mm -hmm. there's no way you're gonna be able to go out and fend for yourself and 
and hunt for your food and whatnot. And the mother has to be the one rearing the child because the mother has the milk. It's not like these days. Dad just can't go buy some Enfamil and like make a <laughs> bottle. There was no Enfamil and there were no bottles. So the mom had to care for the kid. And so we think that pair bonding started, uh, started, you know, we weren't always pair bonders. Hominids weren't always pair bonders. And to this day, not all of the, you know, um, of our evolutionary cousins pair bond. But at some point, at some point, the, a certain species of hominids did. We think it was to allow for a better survival ability for that child who was helpless. These child, you know, as human babies, we don't start walking until like one, and then we don't start really talking and being able to do stuff until about two. And so we think that's why uh, we started to pair bond. And then as for to this day, so it's kind of fun to think about, you know, like we still pair bond to this day and we don't know where it comes from. People have different stories about it, but evolutionarily it most likely derives from the fact that if that father did not stick around in some way to help out, that child would not have had as good of a chance to survive. And then that, that genetic information would have been lost. And so mm -hmm. the genetic, genetic information of those fathers that did stick around were most likely to to continue on due to the better survival of that of that child. So marriage in the modern day correlates a lot with the free rider problem that we were talking about earlier a little bit. Do you believe uh, that or I'd not course, necessarily? I don't know if I'd call it a free rider, though there are some there are some theories about why pair bonding occurred. So we don't know entirely, but mm -hmm. I guess I would phrase it less that it has to do with free rider than it does with uh giving birth to helpless offspring. So Birds have the same problem, so it's interesting. So birds birds give birth to these eggs and then they just sit on them. And so the gestation period is just bird on egg or, you know, bird with nurturing egg outside of the bird's body. And so why do you think, you know, why do you think birds have to, we had to give birth early because, you know, the our human brain is just too big. Why do you think birds had to give birth early, not keep them in their body? Their children, any idea? Why would a bird, why would it be a horrible thing for a bird <laughs> to keep their baby in their body the whole time while they're like, you know, gestating? Well, maybe birds also had the same kind of evolution that we did in the sense that the baby birds are bigger, so you have to put them into an egg. Yeah, and those birds are trying to fly. True. So yeah. if you had a heavy egg inside of you, well, or a heavy, like. you're basically, <laughs> so it's going to be really difficult for that bird to fly, and so... Interestingly, we think that birds pair bond, not because the brains are too big. The brains are little, like bird brain, right? We always joke about it. Birds have little brains. Mm -hmm. So we don't think birds pair bond because their brains were too big. It's just that in order for them to continue flying, they can't carry around this offspring inside of them. They had to give birth, leave it in an egg, take care of it that way, um, which is still sort of helpless. You know what I mean? So they still have to like have this egg, take care of it. And uh, so... They pair bond potentially for a similar reason to us in the sense that you have to you have to effectively give birth before the thing is ready to go out in the world and and deal with all the challenges it, it's thrown at it and you potentially need a double parent situation in order to give that baby the a better survival opportunity and spread that DNA and genetics throughout the world. And then for humans, there are some relationships now that aren't necessarily like man and woman right because maybe you could argue that it's because they don't have to really protect the baby anymore but it could just 
but like that's also more of how like, that's more of just how like the uh society society's been able to evolve i feel like because um it's more of like a that's not necessary like are necessarily um our primary focuses aren't the same same primary uh focuses that we had during the hunter gatherer age or really like that it's definitely different. Like we wake up, go to work, uh, take care of family uh, through getting money and stuff, as opposed to like getting food and protect and uh, protecting uh, family from like actual like animals and stuff. Yeah, we should probably distinguish between marriage and pair bonding. I mean, I feel like there's an obvious overlap to the two. Mm -hmm. uh, right. I doubt we'd have marriage as an idea at all if we didn't go through that pair bonding phase. I don't, right. but. Mm -hmm. But the institution of marriage is different from simply pair bonding. In fact, in a lot of species, uh, the species that pair bond aren't even necessarily monogamous. Um, there's all kinds of weird variations on this. Like the pair bonding has more to do with uh, not like not necessarily monogamous relationship, but having two parents in order to rear the rear the offspring to give them a better chance to survive. And so uh, humanity's had a had a colorful relationship with our, you know, uh, with the institutions of marriage. Um, there, there's even some debate about how polygamous early humans were. It's unclear. Different people have different ideas. Once, once agricultural revolution happened and you started getting people in these cities that had more and more wealth and power, you started getting polygamous relationships where, you know, one male with a lot of money and power could have like many, many wives and whatnot. And so the institution of marriage has varied wildly over the agricultural revolution, but the tending toward monogamous relationships might be a relic uh, and a holdout from early, early, early times, millions of years ago when, when people had to pair off to protect children. So pair bonding is different from marriage. I'm not trying to say like marriage is uh, just comes from evolution, but but the pair bonding seems to, and so. And then I also kind of think that, personally, I think marriage could even be going against evolution because back then, like we had monogamous, monogamous relationships and we do still see some, do still see some people with like polygamy and stuff like that. But my kind of evidence for why we're going against evolution is because people like sometimes cheat on their spouses or whatever and that could just be due to people's like life getting longer and that they feel like that if they're stuck in a relationship that they don't like that they're going to have to live through it for a longer time than they used to but i think that people are cheating because it's not natural for them to just be with one person yeah it could be like we're we say we're a monogamous species but it's more like we're just trying to be a monogamous <laughs> We've been terrible at this for the longest time. So, I mean, I mean, there's I evidence. If you look back at genetic evidence, you can see that like a good deal of of cheating most likely occurred amongst early hominids. And so, even in even in species that we say are monogamous, a lot of them aren't. You know, a lot of them aren't perfect. Humans certainly are not perfect at this. Mm -hmm. um, even though it developed millions of years ago this pair bonding uh we are not necessarily professional monogamous if you just look at the divorce rate these mm -hmm. days clearly we are not experts at this um 
The fact that we do it at all is a little weird though, and at least amongst mammals. And so um, clearly, you know, this isn't a black and white issue. You can't say that we're completely monogamous or, or not. And I guess there's a danger in trying to value something. There's something called the natural uh, um, fallacy. Have you guys heard of the naturalistic fallacy? Um, this is the idea of saying something's good now because saying something's good now because it came from evolution. So mm. I'm not trying to say that anything's necessarily good because it came from evolution. So there's a danger in trying kinda, to justify things because of evolution. And, it's just kind of good because it's good. well, not good. It's kind of there because it's it came there from because God. of evolution. Yeah, and exactly. Whether we think it's good or not, that yeah, whether we think it's good or not, that's up for debate now i will say like it does inform in terms of what you might think is fulfilling so mm -hmm. if if it comes from millions of years ago that might be something people still find fulfilling to this day on a deeper level than something that was invented 50 years ago and so it does inform ideas of that could have an ethical uh you know component but it doesn't necessarily you can't just necessarily say that because it happened in evolution therefore it's good yeah, yeah. and then yeah. yeah, so those of you listening, let us know what you think about all of this. And then also thank you for tuning into the podcast. Thank you, Mr. SP. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you, guys. Yeah, our time's just about up, so I think we'll be ending the podcast now. But there will be more podcasts to come. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.